0: Let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask Him to illuminate this text to us this morning. Gracious Spirit, the one who inspired, breathed out the very words of God into the hearts and minds of faithful men, so that they wrote down for us the very words of the true and living God, Would You illumine this text to us this morning? Would You help us, Lord, to see areas of encouragement in our lives, seeing how God has been at work? Would You expose us, Lord, in areas where we deeply need to repent? Would You give belief to those in our midst who have not yet believed? Would You strengthen faith in those whose faith is struggling? Would You bless us this day? with the reality of your word being seen and believed and lived out in our midst. Even this day we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. If you would stand with me as we read from Ephesians chapter 5. This is God's holy word. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Give thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. I can still remember back in the late 70s and early 80s, for those of us who were raised in the church, you may well remember when the fellowship group craze hit the church and there was this huge discussion of, What is fellowship? And we have discussed those kind of things over the last years of really wrestling with what is fellowship among believers? Koinonia, as it is talked about in the Greek. What is it that makes real fellowship? And what I want you to begin to think about in some sense here this morning is this. Fellowship and friendship are two different things. I have fellowship with some people that they and I don't really like each other in the flesh. And I have friendship with some people who we really do like each other in the flesh. But I'm unable to have fellowship with them. And with some people who I may not always get along with, I have true fellowship with them. And the reason is, is that fellowship is something that only people who know the Lord Jesus Christ are able to have. Only Christians can have fellowship. It's impossible for anyone who is not a Christian to have fellowship with another human being. Because the very tools, the very means of having fellowship require God to do something in the life of a person that unless he acts, they cannot experience fellowship with him, fellowship with one another, true fellowship with the created order that God made. And so I want you to begin to think about the realities that that draws us to then. There are people that we're able to associate with, do things with, have fun with. Some of you are involved in various clubs. You're in a quilting club or you're in a bicycling club or you're in whatever kind of activity or thing that you're involved with. There are all kinds of people, and you ought to be friends with people who are not Christians. How else would you tell them about Christ if you don't know them, if you haven't made friends with them? But what we need to really be clear about is is that you are not having fellowship with them. And this also maybe helps us begin to think about the fact of how we begin to deal with the fact that God brings together into His church, and I'm talking about the universal church, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. People from a variety of cultural backgrounds. People from a variety of skin tones. People who like this and don't like that being meted together with people who like that and don't like this. And it's a work that is ongoing in this life. And it shouldn't be surprising that it is hard sometimes because it is something that is supernatural and requires God. And this is why in some cases when we tend to think about fellowship, we tend to become very... Frustrated as Christians, because our thinking of fellowship is that means we all get along and are always happy and always joyful and always. And what I want to say to you is, is that that is not the Bible's understanding of how fellowship necessarily works. That is an end, but understand this, men and women, and I think this is something we have a hard time believing. This is not heaven. Those times when you see people that you get along with and enjoy, and it's just like, this is like heaven. Exactly. It's like it, but it is not it. And there is a reality that we need to understand in the life of every physical manifestation of the church that while heaven is being worked into us and we are being fitted for heaven, that is often a painful, difficult struggle in this life. And oftentimes, we keep being people who want to run off to the next place or the next event hoping that somehow there we will find fellowship. Only to find that it continues to elude us. Because fellowship is not a place so much as it is a reality, a state of mind, a commitment to what God is doing in the midst of His people. Do you understand that? Do you understand that dealing with sin is gross, hurtful stuff? So when a bunch of people who are sinners start having to really deal with their stuff, do you understand that sometimes that's not always real pleasant to be around? It's not always really easy. If you've ever walked into a room where someone is struggling with life and death in a hospital if you walk onto a floor where people are really ill, oftentimes there's a smell there that is just unpleasant. There's a reality of dealing with sick people that is often difficult to deal with. Oftentimes, people who are ill don't tend to act very nice because all the pleasantries and niceties have been removed and it's just pain and hurt and fear And afraid, because life is being exposed. And what I'm afraid of, oftentimes, that we end up with in Christianity is not a true biblical sense of fellowship, which is people coming alongside other people to help one another along the journey, but rather looking at a place where we have euphoric, wonderful, happy feelings. And that's not the Christian life. Do you have those moments? I hope so. Because, man, if you don't ever have glimmers of heaven, if you don't ever meet with people who say, yes, brother, press forward, you're not nuts that you're struggling with that, or it's okay that you screwed up like that, and let's keep joining arms together and walking forward. Pilgrims in these days. We need that. And that's exactly what I think Paul is bringing us to. But I want us to understand very clearly that fellowship that we share together is something that ultimately is outside of ourselves that we have to be committed to. And if we're not committed to it, like I just said, we're going to start looking for it in a variety of other places. Because we think it's something that other people can give to us rather than realizing there's only one source of fellowship, and that's the Holy Spirit. That's it. And we want to look in this passage and see what he drives us to to be connected to. As we look at this then, what I want us to think about is Paul is drawing us back to remember chapter 4 where he said this, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, because we're to be working out Our salvation, we're to be showing ourselves to be worthy of the gospel. So the first thing I want us to look at then in this passage, if you'll look at verse 18, I read that whole section so we'd have some continuity, but I really want to look at verse 18 and down to 21. It says this, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Now our tendency is to possibly focus so much on what Paul's exhorting us not to do that we miss the whole point of what he's really saying. Paul is not so much concerned about drunkenness, as it were, as the reality of why one pursues that type of activity. And the idea, then, I want you to think about is this. A drunk, a person who seeks to fill that with their life is a person who has a reckless heart. They're reckless with their own heart, and they're reckless with other people's hearts. Think about that. Ever been around a drunk person? Oftentimes, they are people who are not really thinking about anything but themselves, they're totally driven by self. And the interesting thing is, the word there, and we have to say something in it when we're translating language, but maybe it, it doesn't help us as much when it says this for this is debauchery. The word there in Greek is actually the negative of the word for salvation. So, if the word for salvation is for this is salvation, what Paul's saying is, for this is not salvation. So that begins to maybe help us understand what drunkenness is playing out here. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is not salvation. Now you see what he's really getting at, and that's why I said if you don't really pay attention to what he's really saying, we get all caught up in... Now, you see how the ills of alcohol, and we're all of a sudden off and running in a temperance movement. And that's not to say that we don't need to be wise in our day and age with the fact that people abuse all types of substances. But we would miss the heart of this passage if we basically got all caught up in alcohol with realizing that there are all kinds of things people pollute themselves with to run away with their sin or to seek greater discernment for life, and all types of things, which is exactly what wine was used for back in the ancient times. I want you to think about this. A reckless heart is a heart which is prone to worry, prone to fear, prone to disbelief, prone to strive after power, prone to look for comfort, prone to strive after control. Prone to seek, to be approved. Think about those things. That's a reckless heart. Why? Because it's being driven by something other than that which it was made for. And that is God. And so what I want you to begin to think about as we look at this is that wine in the Old Testament functions two ways. Wine in the Old Testament is the sign of the coming of Christ. Read the end of Amos. Read many of the minor prophets. And what often is talked about there is, and new wine will flow out. Wine will be poured out. A sign of the kingdom is wine. But note what Paul says here. The very thing that ought to signal for you, salvation has come, is used in a perverted, twisted Tormented way. Don't be drunk with wine. What you've done is taken something created and turned it into a means of salvation. And Paul is saying, that's not salvation. Getting that car, marrying that right person, being in that kind of relationship, getting in that inner circle, being a person that can tr- control all the circumstances of your life, being a person that's able to be in charge, being a person that says, hey, I want to be able to know exactly what's going to happen, exactly when it's going to happen, and exactly the way it's going to happen, and who's going to be doing it. And see, for many of us, that's how we live life. That's what we want. And the point is, do you realize what that takes us away from? Trust. Because see, God does not tell me everything that's going to happen, exactly the way it's going to happen, who's going to do it, and all the ways to deal with it. What does he say? I will never leave you or forsake you. Trust me. And as Americans who have on our coin, in God we trust, no, we don't. And it's not the them out there that I'm so concerned with. It's the us in here that we don't trust in God. We run after other gods. And we hope that somehow they will do that and give us surety, which they cannot do. They are not salvation. Now, to look a little bit more before we leave this about what Paul was looking at, here's the thing I want you to see. Wine was used in the Old ancient period, to gain insight. It was believed if you got drunk enough or got high enough. or got And think about this. There were people in the 60s that do this. If you go up into the New Age world all over Arizona, one of the things they always use is some form of drug. Something because they believe that somehow if you can just get rid of all your stuff, you'll have insight into the truly spiritual. There's nothing new about that under the sun. That's exactly how the ancients used to look at drunkenness You would get drunk and then you would have this great insight into the other world and you would know and understand how to operate. Another way that alcohol and other such things have been used is to forget your troubles, at least for a little while. I know many a person that when you ask them, why do you drink? Oh, I hate the taste of alcohol. I hate the effects of this drug or that drug. So why you do it? Because for a little while, I don't hurt. At least for a little while, I'm not in pain. The third thing that we often see this doing is it's to rid yourself of conscience. It's to basically get rid of your inhibitions. I want to do what I want to do. The problem is I've got just enough religion to make myself miserable. So see if I can just basically drown out that religion in me, that moral compass inside myself then I can do what I really want to do and act like I really want to act. Or at least not worry about how I act. I'll just do whatever seems to come, quote-unquote, natural. And so I want you to look at what Paul is suggesting here as he's looking at this thing, is don't let it be confined to just alcohol. In our culture, there's all kinds of things that this could be. People stomping over another person to get, get a little bit higher on the ladder. If I could just get to that position, that's this power surge, pornography, drug abuse, the fact that millions of Americans are in debt up to their earlobes and beyond. They're drowning. Why? Because if I could just get a few more things and add them to the coffer, I'll be happy. That will make the difference. Or, you know, I know people that shop because it's basically whatever it releases in their system, their endorphins, when they buy something, it's like, whew, and they get, a, they get a rush. It's literally a chemical response to purchasing something. They're addicted to it. They do it. For a brief moment, I felt good. It gave me something that I'm longing for. And I want you to understand that what Paul is really saying here, what Paul is really after is to get us to come to a place where we understand that in any way, shape, or form, when our hearts are directed in those ways, we have a reckless, lustful heart which can never be focused into fellowship. And now I want to begin to help you understand how that works out. What then is the fellowship of the Spirit. Well, the first thing I want you to think about in in the fellowship of the Spirit is the idea of here. We've been talking about the heart all along. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. What does God come to give us by, by the Spirit? In the Old Testament, the promise was, I will pour out my spirit, and what? I will give you a new heart. A heart that goes after me. and Not a heart that goes after yourself. And so one of the distinguishing characteristics we have to understand of fellowship is people who have been changed fundamentally, even though the realities of that change are a lifetime Of growing and struggle and growing and struggle. But that change has to have taken place. Now Paul says this in this passage. There's basically two imperatives here. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And the interesting thing about that being filled with the Spirit is this. It's an imperative passive. Now that may not mean much to you if you're not, and I'm not all that grammatically inclined, but... Alas, one of the things translating Greek forces you to do is to look at the grammar. So I've become grammatically inclined just by a sure fact of looking and learning another language. But here's the point. An imperative, it's something you're commanded to do that's passive, which means it has to be done by somebody else for you. Think about that. What Paul says is, be filled continuously with the Spirit, but it's not something you can do to yourself. So you're urged, commanded, exhorted, have this happen to yourself. But basically what you're dependent on is the Spirit. Now think about those of you who know John chapter 3, think about what it says there. The Spirit blows where He wills, like the wind. He does what He wants to do, the way He wants to do it. And we are utterly dependent on Him, but it's something that as Christians, we're commanded to seek to have. The idea then might be better to say something like this, let yourselves be continuously filled with the Spirit. Because it's passive. The idea is that I want to do everything I can to be a person that the Spirit delights to fill. I want to do everything in my power To be a person where the Spirit of God delights to dwell. That's really what's being said here. The idea here really is, I can't make the Spirit fill me. But what I can do is seek to be a place the Spirit delights to fill. Think about other passages of Scripture where it says, Don't grieve the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. The idea there is not so much that you have power over the living God, like as if you could do something to stop Him. It's more the idea of the fact that you are doing things which actually stifle yourself from being a beautiful place for the Spirit to dwell. Rather, you continue to pollute the temple of the living God. So really what Paul is saying here is that we ought to be people who strive not to pollute the temple. Are we ever going to do it perfectly? No. Are we going to be flawless? No. But we ought to be people who desire to do that, who strive to do that, who don't go after the ways which don't lead to salvation, but rather pursue the things that do lead to salvation. Now that brings us to an interesting thing. Because it says here, be filled with the Spirit. And so the question then becomes one of, what exactly does the Spirit fill us with? Is it Himself? Now there's a number of people who would say, well, that's exactly what this passage is saying. That's exactly what other passages say. The Spirit fills us with Himself. It's to be full of the Spirit. But I want us to look at some other passages and see if that's really a right way for us to understand this passage? Is that really what Paul is after? And here's where I want you to look at. If you would turn with me to John chapter 16. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 16. I want you to look at verse 5, and I want to read down through, through a few verses. But I want you to look at what, sa- what he says here. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and that would be his heavenly Father. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Now, I want you to think about this, men and women, because I think this is really honestly, many of us as Christians believe personally that if, you know, if Jesus was just here like he was with the disciples, man, I could, I could live an incredible Christian life. I mean, if I just had Jesus, I mean, if Jesus basically lived, just think about it. Family worship every day with Jesus. I mean, Jesus leading, because I'm not... No, Jesus, you pray. You, you lead the family worship. You... Everywhere I go, Jesus is with me. Somebody says something off the wall crazy to me. Well, Jesus is right there. Jesus, will you give me strength to help me. And he reaches over and holds my hand and helps me to get through that moment. I mean, we really believe that. And think about the disciples who've walked with this man for three years and they know who he is. This is the Son of the living God. This is God in the flesh. How could it possibly be better for Him to go away? How insane is that? He's right here. I mean, we see miracles. Wham! And there they are. Bread's being made. Fish are being multiplied. Wine's being made at a wedding. People stretch out withered hands and they're made whole. Even if it is on the Sabbath. I mean, amazing And Jesus says, it's better for you if I go away. Reading on. Verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine, therefore I said, He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. Now keep that in mind. Remember in the Gospel of John, we've already heard Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now Jesus says, I'm going to send you the Spirit of truth. Turn back with me to Ephesians very briefly, and I just want to show you two other things, and then we'll we'll press forward into how this is working out into our lives. 123 says this, and I'll I'll begin in 22 just to give some context. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things of the church, speaking of Christ, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And if you'll turn over to 4... 13 again look at what it says there until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the son of god that would be jesus to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of christ now over here then when we start to think about what happens when the spirit comes what the spirit does is to focus us is to fill us with christ Everything in John 16 was about what the Spirit's going to do to show us Christ. Convicting the world of sin because they don't believe in what? The way of salvation. Christ. Of righteousness because I go to be with the Father. What does that possibly mean other than this? That the righteousness of God, which we don't have, has now ascended. This is why it's better for us because we now have an advocate, we're told, with the Father, even Christ Jesus the righteous one. And the third one there, as far as the idea of us moving forward from John 16, you'll, you'll forgive me for not uh, being able to draw it right off the top of my head. Concerning judgment, the, ideal is, the idea, because the ruler of this world has been judged, the idea there is this, that Christ has really come and done something which has defeated the world order that was reigning until He came. So what the Spirit basically does is He says three things. I've come to show you you're in unbelief so that you'd be convicted so that you would believe. I've come to remove your guilt because you have a righteous one in heaven. I've come to let you know that real power is available to you. Paul's already said this to us on more than one occasion in Ephesians. Real power. Why? Because Satan has been defeated. The power of this world order no longer prevails. The gospel goes forth. The power of God is revealed. People are being converted all over this world, even today as we speak. Remember, Jesus didn't come to set up a kingdom in the way the world wants to set up a kingdom. His kingdom advances despite the kingdom of this world. Now what all does this drive us to well, very briefly, I want you to look at what Paul says, and he says, "Be filled, be continuously filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with, with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ." What has God given us that the Spirit uses to bring Christ to us? The means of grace. For some of you, when that buzz term gets thrown around all oh, the means of grace, what does that mean? Well, it's basically these three things: the word of God, the sacraments of God, and prayer to God. Now think about it. What is the priest's word to do? It's to lay before you Christ. Who has to do that ultimately? Well, Christ himself, well, how does Christ do that by the Spirit? When we come to this table, a table of thanksgiving, a Eucharistic table, a table of thanksgiving, how do we do that? Well, we're told the Spirit actually feeds us Christ. Points us to Christ. Nourishes us by Christ. When we think about prayer, caring for other people, focused on what God wants... Where does that come from except by the Spirit? Because the Spirit ultimately has to stir us up to pray. Because our desires often are not for other people. Are often not for the ways of God. They're for our ways. So notice what then Paul Paul is saying to us as the Spirit does these things. He says, We are to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. One of the things I... I want you just to get out of that making melody. It's actually the idea there is strumming the harp of our heart. I want you to think about being that kind of person. What if when people were around you, what they felt like is, that person's just melodic. When they speak to me, I just feel like that there's a harp playing in the background as they tell me about Christ. Because see, that's really what it's telling you. Encouraging one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. About What? About our God and His great salvation, about the realities of a God who has not abandoned us to ourselves and our own devices. What would possibly prompt us to be people of thanksgiving? Why do we come to this table, a table of thanksgiving? Because we believe that Christ really is held out to us, that He really has done what He said He was going to do, and that is to die for our sins and has laid out the hope of us that as surely as He gave His body, poured out His blood, we have the hope of resurrection. We have the hope that He is with us, sustaining us. Finally, as we think about the whole idea of submission, ultimately prayer is the greatest form of being submitted. Why? Because I actually take my valuable time and offer it to God on behalf of others. Do you see that? you see that ultimately prayer, because let's face it, men and women, why do many of us not pray very much? Because it takes valuable time. I actually have to stop doing other stuff that's really, really, really important. Prayer actually is me saying what is going on and what God is up to actually is more important and more necessary than the other things that I may need to do. Martin Luther used to say this all the time. He said, I have so much to do today, I can't afford not to pray. And he would spend sometimes three or four hours in prayer before he got busy with whatever it was he was doing. Of course, he did get up at three in the morning and only slept three hours. I don't recommend that for many of you. You will not be a very happy people if you only sleep three hours. This may explain to some degree some of Luther's, Luther's temperament issues too. He had a rather raucous temper he was known for. Um, but my point I want you to see is, is that what Luther was saying is right on the money. We have so much to do today, we can't afford not to take time to pray, to submit our time and our hearts towards God and towards others. And so what we see then is that Paul's laying out for us a reality that we need to be focused on, and that is that we speak the words of Christ to others, that we have grateful hearts which are constantly thanking God and drawing others to join us in thanking Him for all that He's done for us, and a submission which says, I love you because Christ loves you. Notice what I didn't say. I love you because you make me feel better about myself. I like you or I love you because when I'm around you, I feel closer to God. True biblical submission is saying this, Christ loves you, therefore I love you and I'm willing to serve you even if it's costly. See, don't you understand that's what grace ultimately does to us? Do you realize if you could work for your salvation, do you understand that then you might could at least negotiate terms with God? You could have negotiating terms. You know, Lord, I, you said I had to do this, 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 and this to get saved. And I did all those things and this, 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 and this. So that ought to give me some brownie points. But if salvation is all of grace, do you understand how dangerous that is? That means Jesus can ask you anything and nothing is too great. And that's why men and women, many of us don't really like grace. And that's why we really don't enjoy fellowship with one another is because what real fellowship is is a bunch of people who realize that a Savior has given His life's blood. He submitted Himself to the Father for me. Paid it all. There's nothing I can do to earn a deserve it. Nothing. He's done it all. He's paid the full price. Which now means I'm in a very precarious position. Because when he says, But Dennis, won't you love this person who irritates the fool out of you? Well, you know, Jesus, can't we negotiate? Did I give it all? What part of it do you have that I didn't give? Your life, your time, your talents, your resources? What of it have you not been given by me? Are you saying, Dennis, that you're not willing to serve me? Are you saying, Marty, you're not willing to give to me? Are you saying, Jane, you're not willing to pray for these people that I love? Do you understand that real fellowship is a group of people who've been captivated by the wonder of saving grace? For they're willing to think about salvation, be thankful for salvation, and willing to submit themselves to the king of their salvation for the benefit of other people. May God make it so in the midst of this congregation. Amen.